The following podcast is going to contain spoilers along with unfettered feelings of nostalgia. Proceed at your own risk. Here it is, folks. Turn the crank and smell the stank. It's time for Event or Else, the comic book show where I go through most every major Marvel and DC event, one issue at a time, one episode at a time, because frankly, I'm just looking for attention. I'm your host. My name is Steven. And today we begin a new event with issue number one of Crisis on Infinite Earths. It was published by DC Comics in April of 1985 and was written by Marv Wolfman with pencils by George Perez, inks by Dick Giordano, letters by John Costanza, and the colors were by Tony Tallon. The issue opens in the past with the birth of the multiverse and its many versions of the planet Earth. The story then shifts to the present on one of these Earths that is quickly being enveloped by some sort of white energy that is literally erasing this Earth and its universe from existence. A man with pink hair and a green cape watches helplessly as millions succumb to the wave. In desperation, he attempts to save at least one person, but is unable to do so. In anguish, he calls out to the wave, begging to be allowed to die along with the rest. But his cries, they land on deaf ears as he vanishes, knowing that he will be taken to another earth to bear witness to its destruction as he has hundreds more before it. From there, we see another white wave of energy descend upon Earth-3, home of the crime syndicate, an evil version of the Justice League who has long since taken control of the planet. As the wave draws near, nature has just straight up gone crazy. Power Ring and Ultraman, Earth-3's Green Lantern and Superman, try as they might to keep the planet from cracking up, but it's too much, even for them. The wave of energy begins eating away at Earth-3 as the planet's only hero, Lex Luthor, is helpless to stop it. He can only watch as the wave of what he has identified as antimatter takes Superwoman, this world's Wonder Woman. With nothing left for him to do, he races home to his wife, Lois Lane, and their son, Alex. Once home, Lex hatches a plan. With their world dying... Lex is going to save their son. Meanwhile, as Lex and Lois place their infant son aboard a small rocket ship and other members of the crime syndicate are taken by the wave of destruction, Ultraman and Power Ring can do nothing as the wall of antimatter continues its forward push. It's here that the man with pink hair arrives to witness the death of another universe. He tells the two that his name is Pariah and he is there to mourn for their world because, frankly, there's nothing else he can do. Ultraman, however, chooses to fight until the very end and does so by flying into the wall of antimatter where he is swallowed up, never to return. In the meantime, the Lex and Lois of Earth-3 launch their rocket ship, which has been designed by Lex to cross the bridge between dimensions. The rocket, carrying their infant son, shoots into the sky well ahead of the impending doom. 
The two embrace, taking comfort in the knowledge that their son will be safe. And professing their love to each other one last time, they let the wall of antimatter wash over them, erasing them from existence. The rocket escapes the destruction of Earth-3 and crosses over to Earth-1, where it lands on a defunct JLA satellite, which has been abandoned and left in ruin. We cut to another satellite where a woman named Lila and a man she calls the Monitor watch as each universe dies. It's July 1985, and they have a plan to gather both heroes and villains from across what is left of the multiverse to try and save what still remains. The Monitor is to set off and retrieve the infant Luther from the JLA satellite, and so he commands Lila to energize and summon the others. She agrees to do so, but reminds him that the two are equals and that she will no longer tolerate being treated as his slave before her body suddenly explodes with power. She splits into many identical versions of herself. She is no longer Lila. She is now Harbinger. And each of her beings set off across time, space, and dimensions to gather the team. Harbinger soon arrives in Gorilla City for the first member of the team, King Solivar. He doesn't want to go with her. He reaches out to grab her, but his hand passes right through her body, which causes him to pass out. As his ape guards storm the room to save him, Harbinger disappears, along with their king. In the 30th century, she retrieves Dawnstar, a member of the Legion of Superheroes, and on Earth 2, she gathers Firebrand from 1942. It's as she leaves with Firebrand, we see that she's being watched by a shadowy figure. From there, we find ourselves in the city, where a group of gun-wielding madmen hold a woman hostage on a building top as the police watch helplessly from the street below. But fear not, lady hostage, for the Blue Beetle has arrived to save the day. Once he's finished kicking bad guy butt and is literally dangling one of the thugs from the ledge by his ankle, Harbinger arrives and requests that the Blue Beetle come with her. And so, with the knowledge that it's a lousy night for TV anyway, he agrees to go. Another version of Harbinger travels 45,000 years into the past, where she is attacked by some sort of shadow creature as she speeds across an icy desert. She's taken by surprise, and so is no match for the creature that soon possesses her, turning her eyes black, which, it's that's never a good thing. Cut to the present on Earth 2, where another Harbinger variant is visiting an insane asylum, where she finds, in a padded cell and restrained with a straitjacket, the next member of the team, the Psycho Pirate. She produces for him his Medusa mask, and with that, he is ready and raring to go. Meanwhile, we go back once more to 45,000 years ago, and we find ourselves in Atlantis, hanging with a wizard by the name of Arion, who honestly looks like he might fit right in, rocking out on stage with the likes of, yes, Uriah Heep or Hawkwind. Shout out to Steve Bryant for that joke. Anyway, he is the Lord of Atlantis and one high mage. Wait, that, that doesn't quite sound right. Um... He is Aryan, High Mage, and Lord of Atlantis. So, okay, high as in high ranking, not as in he's, you know, always, you, never mind. The point here is that this guy is a freaking wizard. 
He's next on the list to join the team, and so Harbinger gets him too. Back in the present on Earth-1, Firestorm frees the villain Killer Frost from an icy cage. Despite the rescue, Killer Frost isn't happy to see the hero, and so she fires a round of ice daggers at him, which he atomically alters into flowers. He then calls out to Harbinger, asking if she's there, and she appears with Psycho Pirate beside her. Psycho Pirate uses the power of his Medusa mask to make Killer Frost fall in love with Firestorm. And this girl falls hard. And so now, Harbinger can take both of them, along with Psycho Pirate, to join the team. Back on the Monitor satellite, we meet the rest of the team. Along with those already mentioned, we have Superman of Earth 2, who's got a bit of gray in his hair, Cyborg, Obsidian, the Green Lantern John Stewart, and Geoforce, along with the villains Simon and Dr. Polaris. As the team are chilling and talking among themselves, a great big bunch of shadow creatures appear out of nowhere and attack. They quickly overwhelm our team and are about to defeat them when a blinding light appears, forcing the shadow creatures to retreat. When the light dims and everyone can see again, the monitor is standing before them. And he's an odd-looking dude. What with the cornrow mohawk with the widow's peak, the cornrow racing stripes on the sides of his head, and the patches of beard sprouting out on either side of his mouth. It's here that he introduces himself to the group and informs them that he's gathered them together because their universes are about to die. And with that overly dramatic proclamation of doom, our issue comes to an end, heralding for our show the top three things to dwell on. The top three things to dwell on are three moments or aspects of the book that I feel need to be given just a bit more thought. Thought-provoking or just plain silly, the type of moment doesn't really matter. All that matters is that I just got to talk about them. Thing to dwell on number three, Earth confusion. When Harbinger gathers the team, it's not always noted which Earth the hero or villain was taken from. We're told that Firebrand, for example, was taken from Earth too. But when she takes some of the others, such as King Solivar, Dawnstar, and the Blue Beetle, we're given no indication whatsoever which Earth they were on. Personally, I found that more than a little frustrating. Heck, with both Solivar and the Blue Beetle, we aren't even given a time. Firebrand was taken from 1942, and Dawnstar was taken from the 30th century. But we have nothing but the surroundings, the technology, and the fashion to tell us when Solivar and the Blue Beetle were taken. And at first, I had to assume that if we're not being told which Earth and what time, that means we're in the present day on Earth-1. But then, here comes that Blue Beetle scene, which, frankly, pounded a couple of dents into my theory. Because with the Blue Beetle scene, there's no mention of Earth. Nor is there a mention of the time or even the place. It's just called the city. So now I'm super confused, because if my theory holds true, we should be on Earth-1. But yet, while I'm no DC scholar, the one thing I've always known, or at least assumed about the Blue Beetle was that before the crisis, he hung his hat in his place on Earth-4. So what's the deal? Is this Earth-4, or does my theory hold true, and I have to assume that it's Earth-1, since they don't let the reader know? 
But wait, how about some more confusion? When Harbinger grabs Firestorm and Killer Frost, it is clearly stated that they are on Earth-1 in the present day, which not only dents my theory, it blows it to a million pieces. I mean, what the flip? Why point it out for some and not for others? Maybe we'll get more information in future issues. I don't know. But really, to me, this was a huge misstep in the writing and the presentation of this issue. And frankly, if everything else about the issue wasn't so dang good, it might have just ruined the entire thing for me. Thing to dwell on number two, I just can't with some of these characters. Now, I'll be the first to admit that I've always been more of a Marvel zombie, preferring them over the distinguished competition on most days of the week. But that's not to say that I dislike DC. In fact, my single most favorite superhero in the world has always been and always will be Superman. And I love me some Blue Beetle. But when you throw a character like Psycho Pirate in front of me, who really I got nothing against except for the name, I start to get a little worried over what I'm reading. But he's not as bad as Simon. Don't get me wrong. Marvel has its share of horrible characters, but no one takes the cake in this issue like Simon. I have no idea what book this guy is from, which hero or heroes he normally goes up against, or even what earth he calls his own, but he just looks completely ridiculous. He's just this skinny dude in a robe with a ponytail, and the top of his head is a clear dome under which you can see his brain. I mean, wow. And his name? Good Lord. Simon. P.S. I-M-O-N, Simon or Simon. I'm sorry if I offend all the Simon fans out there, but I just can't with this guy. I just can't. Thing to dwell on number one, George Perez is the straight-up goat. Look at this book. It is beautiful. I'm going to be talking more about the look of the issue in the wrap-up, but honestly, I feel like I'd be doing this issue and the comic book industry as a whole, a huge disservice if I didn't take a moment to point out how gorgeously detailed and intricate this book looks. George Perez just doesn't mess around here. I mean, there are so many panels and so much going on in each panel that I am amazed every time I look at it. George Perez, ladies and gentlemen, super goat. And those were the top three things to dwell on. So now we come to the part of the show where I wrap it all up and I tell you how I feel about the book in general. I should start off by saying that this is only the third time that I'm reading Crisis on Infinite Earths. The third time in like ever. The first time was back in the late 90s and the second time was just two years ago. I said it earlier, but I've never been much of a DC reader, not compared to Marvel, And pretty much every other DC book I have read have mostly been post-crisis. So going into this event, even with my third time through, I really am fairly unfamiliar with a lot of these characters. And yet, I still enjoyed the book quite a bit. Again, having read through this event twice before, I know that in the end, you don't really need to be much of a DC expert to get something out of this story. It's all right there without being a massive info dump. Sure, 
We have the issue where they fail to tell us which Earth certain characters come from. But really, not knowing which Earth Blue Beetle comes from isn't going to hinder your enjoyment or understanding of the story in any way. I mean, right away in this first issue, you're given everything you need to know. There's a multiverse, something is killing it off, and a group of people from different Earths have been gathered by a dude with unfortunate hair to put a stop to it. That's it. That's all you need to know. And the art? Good Lord. Here's the thing about George Perez. He's not too flashy, but he ain't boring neither. No, George Perez has a very classic style that he's made all his own, and he is, if nothing else, consistent. What I mean by that is that panel to panel, his art is just spot on. He's not one of these artists that spends a lot of time making sure the big action panels and splash pages look their best, while the small panels, the ones that just get you moving across the page, are an afterthought. No, that's not him at all. All of his panels are top-notch, every single one of them. And he can really pack a page with a plethora of panels. This guy's a freaking workhorse, people, and I'm a huge fan. But the art is just a part of it. You combine his pictures with Marv Wolfman's words, and what you have here is an epic tale of loss just right here in this issue. I mean, just look at pages two and three. Here we see one of the Earths dying. We don't know which one it is, but we don't really need to know. This is just set up. These pages are here just to show us what's at risk, what our characters are fighting for, and what the cost of failure is. Basically, it's just here to establish the threat. And this two-page spread is as succinct as it is beautiful, and it's as beautiful as it is horrifying. Then you have moments like the team congregating on the monitor satellite. The way the page moves us through each group of characters as they mingle is just a beautiful two-page spread that quickly gets us up to speed on who is who and even manages to tell us just a little bit about each one of them. Beyond that, the quiet moments between Lex and Lois as they share the last seconds of their lives was heartbreaking. And yet, on the flip side, the Blue Beetle scene was light and full of humor. It was just fun stuff. This book has it all, folks. What else can I say? Well, nothing really, because I've said it all. And with that, sadly, we come to the end of another episode. Join me back here next week when we talk about Crisis on Infinite Earths, issue number two, time and time again. What's going to happen next? Well, that's for me to know and for you to find out. Nanny Nanny Boo Boo. Event or Else is a presentation of the Just Another Fanboy podcast. Questions and comments can be directed to eventorelse at gmail.com. You can support the show for as little as a dollar a month over at the Patreon by going to patreon.com slash stevenroar and get instant access to the My Other Podcast podcast, a weekly show where I talk about all the nerdy type things I don't have time to talk about in all my other podcast episodes. I also encourage you to rate the show wherever available and share the podcast with a friend. All links will be in the show notes.
there's a snort. Uh, that may go at the end of the sentence. It better.